listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast, conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Groningen. Hello and welcome back to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. We are here now on episode five and I am one of your co-hosts, Colin Forhan, and I'm sitting next to my other co-host joined once again, Tassa Sarampolis. And we also have a guest here um, uh, for our topic today. Would you like to introduce our guest and our topic, Tassel? Sure. Thank you, Colm. Um, it's really nice to be back. Um, here today we have Lauren Croak, who is uh, e-learning coordinator for the Faculty of Behavioral and Social Sciences and lecturer in psychology. Lauren, welcome to the very fresh podcast studio here in the Faculty of Arts. Thank you. Yeah, it looks and smells very fresher. I like it. <laughs> It must have been quite a couple of years for you being the e-learning coordinator for the faculty it during was, the pandemic times. It was a wild ride. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing well now. Yeah. And and certainly that's still a role that's somewhat continuing, isn't it, as we go forward? It's a very interesting role that is both continuing and constantly developing into what kind of tasks actually are my responsibility or other responsibilities and yeah, whatever it, it, it felt more like a troubleshooting task the last uh, two years, which was very interesting. Mm. Yeah. So today we're talking about uh, the live streams. So to give a brief kind of recap of the situation, and perhaps you can fill me in here, Laurent, if I'm missing anything. But of course, with the pandemic, the decision was made by uh, our faculty, the behavioral and social sciences faculty, to to try and implement as many live streams as possible for students to watch at home. So, um, you know, at one point, even when lectures were in person, but there was still COVID was a very, let's say, heightened issue. And also when it was not possible to actually come to the school, uh, to come to campus. And uh, as we have kind of maybe, let's say the last three months, the rules have been a bit more relaxed the faculty has made a decision to try and encourage on-campus education as much as possible. And one of the decisions was by removing the live streams. Have I kind of captured it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think that's uh, especially the last few months or the last block we've seen, of course, that the, we started this semester in February with the idea that we can host maximum of 75 students in each lecture hall. And then to many surprise, we only saw lecture halls filled up maybe half of that uh, meanwhile, we saw in the various news outlets that students were very eager to go back to campus, to go back to have physical education, that they really needed it. And yeah, the last few months we've seen that is actually not really representing reality, that there were other choices to be made the past times. And yeah, the lectures, they were um, always there by default in the last year when physical education was possible. The live streams of the live, live streams, streams, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, of course, I should say, I should also add that this is all um, packaged in, in a national policy about how to deal with the pandemic. The number of people who are allowed to be in one room at the same time is mandated or has been mandated by government rules. And the university follows those rules. The 70 or 75 um, people limit in lecture rooms was a direct consequence of this. And the dropping of that guideline is also a direct consequence of the change in um, in government policy. Similarly, I think 
uh, one way to think about all of this is that um, the, uh, the return to in-person education or the shift away from live streams also in some way mirrors national strategy uh, on how to manage the uh, COVID pandemic. But all of this is just background. This isn't to, to say that this is, uh, these are the reasons for what is happening, but this is the background for what is happening with the live streams. But yes, the idea is that uh, we've been under this model of hybrid education, partly in person, partly live streamed, sometimes fully live streamed when the lockdown was in full, in full force. And slowly, as the national strategy is shifting away from uh, managing numbers to, to something different, we also seem to be returning or hoping to return to what was once considered normal and what we perhaps hope will return to being normal. And this is something that I think we can explore in today's podcast, what the future of education is, is going to be, how much of it will be online, how much of it will be in person and what the nature of the in-person and the, and the online is going to be. But I think one of the reasons why we're here is that this, this transition into the pandemic, out of the pandemic and through the pandemic, all of these steps have been somewhat shaky at times. And this latest step had its own little mini crisis. And we're here to talk about the live streams and said mini crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, the removal of the live streams or at least the option for instructors to remove the live streams and along with it, the recordings that were released weekly uh, in line with the live streams. Yeah, it's it's definitely been fiery, let's say. Uh, of course, a lot of the reaction has been around communication issues, the specific way in which students found out about the decision was through a university uh, news newspaper, which was Ukant. And maybe I'm not sure if you guys want to talk about that or should we just kind of <laughs> acknowledge that that was, yeah, tumultuous. Yeah, maybe we can just give a very quick timeline of all of this, that indeed the live streams were announced or not announced. It was decided on the faculty level that the live streams for the fourth block of the year would no longer be the default. It was, I think it was decided a week before the block started, a week and a half, I, I forget two exactly. Two weeks before the block started. Yeah, two yeah. weeks. Um, and um, it appears that the university newspaper, the Ukrant, as you say, uh, preempted announcing this before the faculty or the different departments could do their own announcing. Um, much to the dismay of a lot of people, I think, students, staff, administrators, etc., uh, partly the nature of the article was itself slightly fiery in the way that it approached the um, uh, the topic in, I think, not a very nuanced way, not a, in a very good way. Uh, partly the fact that students um, uh, received this information, staff received this information uh, initially through that Ukrant article. Again, the Ukrant article, uh, or the Ukrant not being part of the faculty, not really being part of the university either. They're an independent uh, organization to a large extent and something that we don't have any control over. But to a lot of people's uh, disappointment or dismay or surprise, whatever you want to call it, uh, 
the announcement came that there will be no more live streams by default. Recordings would only be available, I think, at a week before the end of um, uh, the block, before the exams. But, and I think this is a, an important uh, condition, uh, some of these decisions are also up to the individual instructors. This is how it's phrased that's the, at the faculty policy. And that, I think, is an important characteristic that we can talk about. Yeah, I think for the quality, of, I think it was mentioned that for the quality of a course, uh, individual lecturers can still decide whether or not they uphold the live stream uh, possibilities or whether or not they distribute the lecture recordings in time and at specific times. Um, but yeah, in, in general, the idea is that now that the live streams are only accessible for those who have access uh, or for special provisions. And then the uh, recordings are available at a specific time before an exam or a final exam, which already assumes that there is a final exam for the course, because not all courses have that, of course. You mentioned this already, and I was going to leave it until a little bit late, but since you mentioned it, I know a lot of people will want to know more about this, the special provisions, the procedures, the nature of these special provisions. Um, what can you tell us about the process, maybe the, the what is considered an acceptable reason to have this provision? Um, yeah, the, the, the acceptable provision to have is that um, is not really clear yet. I think it's in the same line as whether a student has a has been diagnosed with either ADHD or some other uh, mental uh, issues. Um, at which point the student should contact either the student counselor or the student study advisor. The student council being a central uh, entity and the study advisor being a faculty. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And at which point the advisor contacts or gives an, uh, an approval or advice. Then the student goes to the exam committee and exam committee sort of approves that decision. And then the student can contact the lecturer saying, okay, I have permission to have access to the live streams and or the recordings which then is some technological solution happens in which they are given magical access to the solutions uh, happen and then suddenly they have uh, access again the yeah. magical technical solution being you i understand uh, exactly yeah. and just to pick up there and uh, in preparation for this podcast i was trying to talk to as many students as possible and you know people that feel affected by it people that feel very strongly about it and the way that you've just described it Considering that the decision was made so quickly before the start of the new block, it seems like a very archaic process to go to to go through. You know, I've contacted the exam committee before just simply to get approval for a minor course. And I was pretty surprised by how long it took me to get approval for a minor course. And this was just one simple email. So going between the study advisor, the exam committee, all within the span of realizing a week before your block that this is going to be that it's not going to be possible for students that n need this, that are having difficulty towards getting accessible education. Is there a better way? This is also, I think, a contentious point, isn't it? I, yeah, I, th I think there could be a better way, but also we have to realize that both the study advisors and exam committee are swamped for, for two years by now already. It's very difficult to have these decisions reached uh, in time. Um, I think this is now the third block of the week or the second block of the week? A week of the block. Uh, yeah, sorry, the week of the block. Uh, we're still 
providing access to specific students for specific courses. But yeah, one of the, the downsides or disadvantages of this, this process, as you call it, archaic, is indeed that some, there are also lecturers who have given access at their own pace, of course, mm-hmm. um, because just it took too long to have everything arranged at the start or during the block itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a, a solution could be indeed to have like a central point to, because you also have to take into account the technical limitations and the way we set up these, these live streams and recordings and accessibility on, on Blackboard or Nestor, the learning environment, um, that it takes quite a lot of time or a lot of, um, redundant time to actually give access to one specific person or to one specific person at a specific time. It's a very time-consuming activity. Mm. So what you would rather have is have a big list of students who have a provision and then put all these students in one group and then for all the courses they are following, provide them the same access. But now it's one by one by one by one, mm-hmm. which makes it quite of kind of tedious, both for everybody involved. For lecturers involved, it's extra emails. For students involved, it's, it's just uncertainty of having the, the access or not. And for me and uh, uh, the student assistants I work with, also extra uh, work. And I think that's a, that's an interesting point because we often there are decisions being made um, in, in higher higher levels, so to say, and then the the actual execution of these things is is missing sometimes. So how okay? How do we actually do this? How how does Nesta work? How does can we actually do this? And I'm a bit worried with uh, the implementation of Brightspace, a new learning environment next year. There's going to be a lot of new roles and rules that we have to apply. So this is something to take into account as well. I'd be curious just, um, this is maybe a, to kind of circle back a bit. I'd be very curious uh, in your role as e-learning coordinator, uh, noticing the shift in to incorporating live streams, helping instructors is also with uh, incorporating blended learning or online education. And now the shift out specifically, this shift out has what, what are some of the reactions that you've gotten from across the university, let's say from students, from uh, colleagues, instructors? Based on this specific decision for uh, having live streams? Yes, yeah. yeah. A lot of mixed uh, decisions. I think um, most lecturers agree that it's, that it's a good decision to have the live streams not accessible by default because we just see attendance rates drop. Uh, there were almost empty lecture halls where there were 10% of students enrolled were showing up sometimes. And if you design a course, if you have a, a specific goal in mind with a certain lecture, you assume that there is a full crowd in front of you. If you have the idea that there is a hybrid version, so there are students also participating from a, a distance, then you have to redesign your 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 lecture. You have to redesign your educational activity because there are technical limitations. There are two modalities that you have to uh, cater to, so to say. Three, if you take into account the recordings as well. Three, if you take into account recordings. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, on a larger level, you have to you have to sort of have an expectations management so both for yourself but also for your students what should they expect when they come to lectures and what can you expect as a lecturer to in in, in the numbers of uh, in terms of number of students in front of you and i think that this this played a very big role the last block but also we have to keep in mind that at the start of the semester so the the numbers that we base our decisions on were still 
in lockdown regulations or there were some governmental regulations involved. And it was very, uh, yeah, very clear that the, these regulations would be canceled at one point and that we expected to have all lectures again. But what turns out now that after two years of uh, emergency remote teaching, there's a sense of that students can choose what kind of education they pursue here and having a sort of an a la carte menu where you can pick and choose from what you want to, uh, what you want to, uh, yeah, experience. Can I pick up on a couple of topics that you mentioned uh, just now? One is uh, attendance of lectures. One of the one of the ways in which I found this discussion to happen or to take place in a disappointing way is to talk about attendance and lectures as some kind of um, uh, ego boost for the lecturer or some kind of very superficial uh, evaluation of of an individual or of a course, etc. And I have never really spoken to another teacher who thinks about it like this. Rather, um, they describe it similarly to what you describe, Laurent, which is that when you're building a course, you're designing essentially a, an environment, an environment behind or it, it, within a certain within certain confines. Let's say you have the material that people um, have to read, material that they could read. Um, times at which they can interact with one another, times that they can interact with you, uh, circumstances in which they can interact with one another and interact with the material. And having a certain amount of control and expectation and certainty about these circumstances is important for me as an educator to be able to design proper educational activities and and, uh, proper material to do that. So when I go into a room and I don't know if I'm going to have 100 people to interact with in person, uh, 10 people to interact with in person, 10 people in person and 100 in a live stream, um, maybe 300 people watching the recordings. All of these things dilute my ability to create good content that um, I can use to facilitate students learning. And for me as an educator, this was always the difficulty of the last two years with a hybrid system, not knowing what to expect every week. I don't really, I have certain preferences about whether I want things to be in person or online, but those were matters of flavor, let's say, preference rather than actual uh, uh, educational value. The difficulty that I faced the most was not knowing what to expect. How many people I'm going to see in front of me, whom I'm going to see in front of me, and who's going to be on the live stream and how I'm going to be able to interact with them. And it's very, very difficult to build a class plan not knowing what your environment is. And for me, this is the strongest argument for clarity, whatever that clarity is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're getting into a bit um, of what we can kind of consider the key factors and values to consider uh, in this subject, right? Uh, We were kind of talking before, and it does seem like it is a that accessibility of education and quality of education are really the two key factors in which the the decision kind of hangs around. And it's easy to, I think it's easy to maybe frame this as, okay, by removing live streams, like you said, I get a better idea of how to plan a course as an instructor. And 
therefore I can improve the quality of the education. And I think, you know, most students are very receptive to this. In fact, I would say most of the responses that I've gotten from students talking about this subject expressed incredible nuance. Uh, you know, even the people that felt very strongly about it. Uh, I do have a feeling, I wonder sometimes if we must have this trade-off between accessibility and quality of education. I think there is a middle ground to be struck, I guess, right? Well, maybe I can add to this that I don't think it's just about educational quality and accessibility. It's also other matters. You can have exceptionally high quality education that is fully online or hybrid mm -hmm. or whatever. I think it's perhaps more important to think of it as a matter of educational identity and values. What is it that this university or any university represents and what kind of environment are we in? Just to throw in a very basic example, the Open University has existed in many, many countries for many, many years. Uh, distance learning, even pre-online times, existed in very high quality. And that has always existed pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, etc. So it's, but that has a very different identity to it. High quality, but a different kind of education. So for me, it's not just a matter of whether we can uh, talk about quality and accessibility, but it's also a matter of deciding what is university? What does it mean to be a student at a university? What does it mean to be part of a university community? Yeah, exactly. To just to pick up on that as well is that we've seen in the last few years, a lot of discussion was involved about it's either online or either physical as they are polar opposites of one another. And that one of them is a higher quality course or a better learning experience. But it's all about intentional design of your course. And like you said, Tosos, that's you design a course specific to cater to a certain amount of students and you design uh, assignments to cater to a specific amount of students. Um, and indeed, in, in, in the educational identity is actually a very nice uh, uh, phrase of it, is whether, what, how much freedom should a uh, lecturer or a course designer get and how much time as well to design specific courses. I think after two years of pandemic, it's it's very difficult to to create more time and also enthusiasm to to really focus on more, or again another round of of course design or course adjustments. But like you said, uh, online or distance learning has been around for for many years, and uh, so did hybrid learning for for many years. And if you design a course for that matter, it can be exceptionally well, and it can be appreciated on a very uh, high level. I think uh, in one of the previous episodes, you had uh, Mark Newstein here and he actually had a already nice vision or an idea about how to uh, change his course in to actually have a good hybrid form, given the circumstances that you can have all the freedom of choices that you want, which we the last few years have not seen, unfortunately, because everything that you decide right now, every everything that you want to adjust or measure or test within your course has one big confound variable, which is the pandemic or lockdown regulations. And I hope that after the summer or uh, that, the, that the pandemic will not come back and we can actually think and realize, okay, what do we want to take out of this crazy experience of uh, emergency remote teaching? Mm -hmm. Maybe we can briefly touch upon there because we're, we're, we're discussing quite often now this, yeah, maybe rather mixture between the online and um, the in present, uh, being present education, maybe allowing you could talk a bit about uh, what the university perspective on blended education is, uh, blended learning. 
Yeah, so the blended learning is in the strategic plan or the teaching vision of the university and of the faculty as well. Um, it still has to crystallize. It's a very broad term of educational experiences, blended learning. It can be it, it can be any mix of online and offline uh, course activities, asynchronous or asynchronous course activities mixed together in one course, can be mixed together in one specific uh, education activity, or it can be mixed together in a broader program or in a curriculum together. But so, to, just to be clear, this is the... A few, the approach towards future education, right? They're presenting blended learning as a approach to the future coming years of yeah, education exactly. here at yeah. the university. Yeah, but also we have to realize that this is nothing new. Blended learning has been around for many years, uh, like distance learning. Um, it's just now that it has a label and it has sort of a, a description attached mm. to it. But blended learning can be anything related to if you have a course design and you have a well-designed um discussion board as simple as that where you post questions and how ask students to answer your questions you already have a blended learning experience simply having yeah. a discussion board on nestor is by e definition exactly. blended learning mm -hmm. we have had blended learning for many years as long as nestor has existed online we have had sort of a precursor or an unnamed version of blended of course learning. i guess i guess the application of a label and developing a project behind it is even if as you mentioned it has really it's still trying to take its form is an idea or a signal of intention right so that's i guess what i'm more trying to understand is okay we've now labeled it we've now maybe it was perhaps just as a response to you know, putting a label to make, okay, well, we're adjusting to a pandemic. You know, perhaps that is really the nice thing about these labels is that it's, uh, it signals not only intent, but also effort. And I guess I'm wondering to what extent we, we continue with this project. The intention is to continue with blended learning for the long-term uh, vision. Yeah, at least in the, the next five years, blended learning is a, one of the, the, the pillars of the, of the strategic plan. But then again, we still have to come to terms with what actually actually happened in education the past years. So yes, the idea is there to yeah, pursue any form of blended learning in our education, but to what extent was able to do it? Do we actually get time and money for this? It's not uh, really clear yet. Also, in, in a way, I think for me, one of the the, the ways in which the term blended learning has been very um, unnecessary is that it doesn't really address quality. Blended learning, it's fine. We've had it for a while. We can have discussion boards. We can have peer assignments. We can have um, videos. We can have podcasts. We can have all kinds of material online in parallel or alongside our in-person activities. Um but they can just as well be bad quality activities and blended learning environments as they can be good quality. Just like before we had, let's say, in a, in a, in a very broad stroke, mostly uh, in-person education, in-person lectures, and they could be high quality lectures or not very high quality lectures. We seem to be very frequently talking about the form, not so much the the content. Function. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and then again, also, how would you how would you measure the quality of a course? That's I think also very important to realize that that it, it, it's a very broad term, quality of education. No, I think there's a lot of good ways to measure quality of education from a multitude of perspectives, and I think we'll get to some of those in future episodes. But I can 
very quickly off the top of my head enumerate um, a few simple ones. Uh, having high quality um, student evaluations is one way of understanding the impact of the activities that you create for students. Another one is to simply look at educational attainment. Do these courses facilitate the meeting of certain learning objectives defined outside of the structure of the course? Um, uh, you can look at uh, both teacher and student satisfaction in, in the environment that they're in. You can look at employability of students. You can look at what happens to uh, a cohort after they graduate. Um, you can look at the national survey for um, students in this country. There are all kinds of ways to measure quality of education. And these aren't, these are very, these are the very simple ones. Um, so I, I, I don't know that just because the labels are easy to tick the boxes off, um, that's a good enough excuse not to focus on the content or the quality. No, absolutely. No, just to just to uh, say that it's a very broad term that can be measured in a, in a variety of ways. Also, accessibility can be one of them, of course. If we talk about live streams now, what's the accessibility of a course? Absolutely. Let's uh, talk a bit more about the actual student reaction to the decision to cancel live streams. Um, so there was, to give a kind of brief overview of how it was, I think no one was happy. And, you know, as you mentioned, administrators, instructors, and students about the communication uh, issues surrounding the decision. However, shortly after the decision was made, a petition was sent around, created by one student in the first year, that uh, quickly caught a lot of signatures, 70 signatures, I, I was told, in about four hours. And so... It's it's obviously was received quite poorly by a large percentage of students. As you mentioned, you know, it seemed to be also from what I had heard from just my social circles that everyone wanted to move towards a in-person education. But there's obviously a significant portion that care deeply about this and, and they were in contact with me. And as mentioned, their their arguments and the way that they framed their perspectives was very nuanced. Uh, however, Mostly, mostly it was dealing around accessibility and, um, you know, in general, a bit of confusion around, okay, now how do I, if I want to stay home, if I'm in contact with someone that has, is at risk for developing some serious illness due to COVID or I, I live far away, whatever these reasons, as you mentioned, may be, uh, it is really unclear about how you can get access to this. And I, I have one kind of maybe more, um, yeah, uh, not not controversial question, but rather a, a stimulating question about where the, where our, where our stakeholders are here. You know, of course, the instructors are one, and also students. And I wonder, uh, you know, which one in such decisions shall we really focus on? Um, is it okay for us to tell the students, hey, this is for your own benefit? when they clearly, uh, or a large proportion of them, clearly feel that it's not. I think it's a very interesting topic, actually, <laughs> the amount of stakeholders involved. Um, it, it, it could come across a bit of a paternalistic idea, okay, we decide what's, what's good for you, but I do think that the student voice should be heard more often because there's a clear discrepancy between what we heard 
the last year that students need go back to physical education. But once it's possible, they actually don't show up. Then we, I think our first reaction should not be to cancel what is accessibility or to cancel what is available, but to really ask and understand, okay, then why do you prefer to not be there uh, present uh, physically? Or why do you prefer to uh, to watch the lectures uh, through the streams or recordings? What are the reasons behind mm. it? And when, when uh, so Tos and I are also teaching a course it's, uh, simultaneously at the start of the semester, and we asked the students, uh, what are your, what, what has your preference? Mind you, this is still in the middle of lockdown regulations. Um, half of them, so half of them replied to the question and half of those said, I would like to be present uh, physically during the lectures. And then one quarter said, I want to uh, uh, watch the live streams. Another quarter of them said, I want to watch the recordings afterwards. So that would amount to about 70, 75 students being present in the lectures. And there were, I think in my course, or my version, of course, there were 40 or 50 students present. So that's actually, they did what they said they were doing. But when you asked them about, okay, can you elaborate on your decision? I was surprised by the amount, the variety of answers mm -hmm. from students. And I find it very difficult to say, okay, your argument is valid and your argument is not valid. We've seen... Uh, people pursuing uh, the, the sport on a higher level. Uh, we have students that have their own uh, own company. Uh, we have uh, young parents. We have people who live two hours away from uh, university or from campus. We have people who are very reluctant to go back to being present, physically present with other people because of COVID. We have students who are uh, have caretaker uh, activities, who work with COVID patients, for example, and people who are really just hesitant uh, and, and almost scared to go back experiencing people because the last two years have been quite traumatic for a lot of young people and old people as well, of course. But um, it has been a very traumatic experience for many people. And then we have to realize that these all these experiences, in my opinion, are equally valid. But then... This is in the context of COVID. If you look at then at the quality of a course, so given that COVID does not come back, then we have to decide whether or not who has the autonomy to decide if you want to have accessibility through live streams or you want to offer uh, recordings afterwards. And I do think that uh, given um, the experience from many lectures that they should decide that for themselves, how to pursue this but with a clear communication also from uh, the program directors. If there's a live stream or not, why do we do that? Uh, what's the announced value of having a live stream? What's the announced value of offering videos or not? Um, because now if the recordings, we talk about live stream technology, but also recordings play a, a big role. If you allow recordings a week in advance of the, of the lecture or on an exam, What's going to happen? People are going to binge watch those lectures. Mm. And I don't think that's a very good learning strategy. Of mm -hmm. course, they could be there present physically. They can experience a lecture themselves and maybe point out a few topics that they want to look at again. But having those just one week in advance, I don't think that's a very, uh, very good decision. But it has to be made by individual lectures, of course. Yeah, yeah picking up on what you said, I have a very similar but... Um, you know, opinion on the matter, but with slight differences. Um, I think on a lot of levels, 
voices are being taken into account. They're being collected. They're being heard. Uh, and I don't just mean student voices. I also mean staff voices because staff themselves, teachers themselves, don't necessarily always um, have access to decision making. Uh, but voices, it seems to me, are collected at a, at a number of levels. And decisions often take those into account, but the decisions appear to come out of nowhere or mm -hmm. uh, often appear to come out of nowhere and they're not contextualized. There's not really enough of a dialogue. There's not enough of a shared sense of values and community to contextualize these decisions. As you pointed out, um, there were um, uh, strong responses to this um, uh, up abrupt, let's say, announcement that the live streams would disappear because they were largely uncontextualized. It's uh, fairly, I suppose, students and staff may feel that um, uh, their concerns are just not taken into account. Nobody has listened to their voice. Nobody has discussed this with them and said, yes, these are important matters. Um, these are less important or in the context of these issues, they um, they take second role, et cetera, et cetera. There just doesn't seem to be much space for discussion. And I think this is, for me, the um, the issue at heart here. I um, Speaking on uh, with everybody on all the sides, I think the priority is on having good experiences, good quality education, good interactions. We just don't seem to find the right kind of space to discuss what it means for all of us mutually. Um, and as for the degree of paternalism or, or, or um, um, how directive, let's say, a department is or a faculty or a university it is to set up the environment, I think it's always been like this. You always sort of enter both as a staff and a student into an environment and ideally you take space to shape this environment around you through your feedback, through your evaluations, by participating in the council, by talking to each other, by making meaningful, uh, creating meaningful spaces for discussion on these shared values and having these communicated properly, not as decisions that appear out of the blue, but as uh, difficult, labored dis uh, uh, decisions that reflect a lot of discussion and a lot of uh, consideration of these topics. Uh, and it's always disappointing to realize that both sides <laughs> feel that they're not being heard when I think it's just a matter of uh, not having the right space for these voices to actually cross with each other. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, that's maybe a, a nice transition point because you were talking a bit about the directive nature of, let's say, faculties or universities and you kind of brought up how it is always like this. It was always like this. Um, there, and perhaps, yeah, I think we could, we could talk about the subject for, for quite some time, but to try and, uh, tailor our discussion towards a close, maybe we can talk a bit about normatives. Um, so norms and the pre, the specifically the pre pandemic norm for say students that were, have experienced physical education and, what the norm is for students that haven't yet, that they, they will experience their first and second years almost fully in a uh, online environment. And one thing that I, I got from a couple of students was the feeling that uh, perhaps it was a missed opportunity, you know, that this kind of um, 
yeah, this admiration for, oh, but well, this was how the university lecture is. This is how we do lectures. Uh, maybe it was a missed opportunity to evolve education into a different form. And perhaps we can talk a bit about the norms surrounding this. Yeah, I think it, it goes back nicely also to an earlier episode. Uh, it was made on this series where what's the role of the, of the, the, the lecture in, edu in our education and does um, attendance count or equal uh, learning? Do you have to be physically present to take out everything from a lecture that the lecturer intends you to take out of it? And that also goes back again to an intentional design for a certain group of students. And I think one of the, the, the main issues here is that we don't really know and understand yet how students engage with uh, lectures on a distance. So I would be very curious to, 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 to learn how students sit at home, watch a live stream and how they interact or engage with the, the mm -hmm. material. Um, do they pause and look up things? Are they actually engaged or do they more... Uh, they, do they prefer to have it more as a background thing where they can pursue other tasks at home and just listen to the lecture? Well, doesn't this a lot depend on the nature of a lecture? Oftentimes, I mean, lectures, we also talked about it recently, have uh, take many forms and have many goals and uh, lectures that are typically uh, focused more on information transmission. Um, I suppose we wouldn't expect a lot of people to do a lot of pausing because there's not a lot of reflection. There's not a lot of discussion about application, etc. Um, on the other hand, lectures that deal a lot with application in our programs, uh, perhaps statistics are the most obvious example because they're clearly all about application. In those circumstances, I also expect behavior to be very different, which also reminds me again, the idea that lectures should have tools in their hands, options in their hands to have live streams, to have recordings, if they believe that they enhance um, uh, educational attainment and not have those if they feel based on their experience rather than, I don't know, whatever it is, uh, uh, other thing that they, we might think of, uh, not to have these tools available. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like it that you said tools indeed, because we have been working with uh, certain software the last few years, which is, yeah, which is not the most optimal solutions, for example, because we have live streams availability without any way of uh, an, a native option in there to interact with the students from home. We do not have a default chat function with our presentations to go system, for example. So you have to set up a external chat box or you can have some uh, Blackboard Collaborate or Google Meet uh, activity, where which is another layer of hurdles students and lecturers have to make and decide on before the lecture. So I can imagine that after these experience, it, it comes down to a subpar experience to what it can be. We But we have to work with the tools that we have, not the ones that we need. And that's very, uh, very challenging sometimes. Um, Another thing is, is also that the, the, the arguments uh, for having uh, the need of physical attendance is, yeah, that's how we always did it before mm -hmm. the pandemic. So the pre-pandemic pre norms were you were present at a lecture. That's the only way to gain access to the talk, the conversation, the, the interaction. But uh, yeah, a lot of these 
arguments were also based on on a sort of sense of of, of nostalgia mm -hmm. for those people involved who make decisions not just at our faculty or university but in a broader sense is that people grew up in a certain system with a, a certain education experience and that's their norm but due to the pandemic the norm has shifted quite a bit and i think it's sort of a, a sort of a survivorship bias where you think okay this is i experienced these lectures as this because i remember very fondly this lecturer was very good at her job and mm -hmm. i remember very vividly how i was just mesmerized by the talk but yeah that experience is not the same for people who perhaps left university because these people are obviously still at university workplace they make the decisions now but many students they leave academia as once they they graduated they might not have to had the same experiences with lectures involved of, of course i think the the flip side of it is that there is still a the same can be kind of said to students that have grown up in a online environment right so um i think this is perhaps maybe introducing my own personal opinion about it but uh one thing i'm i think and i think most people are very open to it and however perhaps students don't know that how much they might enjoy physical education you know for those that do not have accessibility issues and uh are as you mentioned all these lists of concerns that are very very valid i think um there is still something to be said that we we also want to introduce you to this to see how it is and and i think that is something for for some students to consider i'm i'm not trying to say that this is the case for every student um as as we've discussed there the reasons for why you prefer live streams and recordings are very wide and broad uh however that said i think most most people that chose you know that weren't showing up to lecture halls were mostly doing it because i i don't want to cycle in the rain I, it's quite far to cycle to zernica at in the morning and i think also to be said these people <laughs> don't feel so strongly They're, they have more neutral opinions about the shift and the canceling of live lectures and that's not to say uh, by introducing that that um that we must also consider the people that are most impacted by the decision, something that maybe we didn't manage to get to, but very briefly, yeah, we, we have to cater to those that are already disadvantaged and who already, um, such a decision, uh, yeah, will further disadvantage them. Yeah, exactly. The, the students in the margin are further marginalized. It's, it's a big word, but they have to take another layer of, of additional actions to gain access to, to lectures. And I, I think it's a very interesting point that you may hear because it, it, it's indeed for many students, it was indeed the case. Okay. It's raining. I live quite far away from Cernica. I have nine o'clock lecture in, in uh, the Jacobs hall. I decide to go online or I decide to watch the lecture. And then it comes down to personal experiences again for me personally also as a lecturer is when I say okay I would rather have students watch the live stream or watch a recording than not come to the lecture at all and have to find everything out at their own pace but again that's a, a personal preference for me as a lecturer and I think again it comes also down to expectations management for a, a new cohort an upcoming cohort in after summer what do we actually provide them in terms of, of access to, to streams and videos? And if you are clear, whatever the decision is that uh, on a program level, 
if you're clear about these decisions, people will definitely agree with it or not by default agree with it, but they will be open to the nuanced way of approaching it, like you said already, Colm. Yeah. So um, this is a question for all of us or um, perhaps a, a good way to, uh, to find the end for this podcast episode. What are we looking at in the next couple of years and maybe five and maybe 10? Uh, 10 is probably a little bit too far away to make predictions on. But what are our hopes and our fears and our expectations for education in the near and far future? Um, actually, I'll start with Colin in this one because I want to know what you think. I guess I hope that... I hope in some ways that everyone can get what they want. So for me, for example, my choice to go to a university was very based on the social atmosphere. In my first year, which was not afflicted or at least partially not afflicted by the pandemic, I loved going to the lectures for the social aspect. I loved, it was really, I'd say almost half the reasons I went to lectures was to meet people that I wouldn't, weren't really in my social close friend circle, but I enjoyed having a conversation with. And that was for me the point of going, now I've gone to two separate universities and I've enjoyed my time at both of them. Now, the reason for another person going to university might be wildly different. And I think part, partly is a very societal implication and a societal reason because in some jobs, atmospheres, you can get educated through online means. So I'm specifically, I'm, I had the example that comes to mind is the tech industry where you can really get, uh, you, you can get an education just completely at these academies online or through courses and get employable. Now, I don't think that's really possible for the behavioral and social sciences for most of people that want a job in this field because you have to get it from a university, an accredited university, and uh, also likely a university that is quite high on the ranking scale. However, uh, that, that presents a problem for people that are really just trying to get educated, but maybe aren't, they don't need that social uh, experience that are suffering from, uh, let's say, accessibility issues or fear around COVID. We, we don't know how long that might come. So my hope is, yeah, maybe a bit more of a, that the structure is, yeah, and maybe an unrealistic hope, but that the structures are put in place that people that are looking to end up in their career paths and where they want to be in an educational sense are able to do that and not forced to maybe come to these more physical settings, which I think, yeah, the university traditionally is and still be able to end up where they want. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer, actually. <laughs> um, I think in my perspective or my vision what i hope is there there could be indeed a shift from the function of the campus as a, as a social meeting ground and breeding ground for new ideas i think in a broader sense what i hope and what i really really want is that lecturers or course designers or program coordinators get more time and rest to really think about the overall structure within a curriculum where you have a a clear and intentional approach to design. Um, that being said, I also want to end on a very positive note is that the, the, the quality of education is really high. I think we have, we offer as faculty as a very high courses, high quality courses, and they are appreciated uh, very, very well. 
And if we continue like this, that's, that seems good. And whether or not we want to inc include uh, labels like blended learning or not, I think that's not really the, the biggest point here, but just to have the time and headspace to focus more on education. And yourself, Tassos? Yeah. Oh, God, I thought we, uh, Lauren said we're going to end on a high note. I don't know <laughs> if my notes are very high. I'm, I'm somewhat uh, cautious about this idea of trying to please everybody. I don't think that's going to work. I think it's going to end up diluting a lot of our normative structures. I think for me, it's perhaps... Um, uh, what I would hope is that we have an opportunity to clarify these normative structures. I, we have a, a chance to, um, in a communal way, redefine and re-understand what university is. It's been going through a lot of changes for, for decades and it's become its identity, um, the, the identity of being at university as a lecturer, as a student, has changed a lot. Um, the number of people who go to university has has jumped dramatically and that has had consequences the expectations from a university degree have changed a lot uh, what happens around education has changed a lot column you mentioned yourself that there are a lot of other ways to get uh, employability skills besides going to university but then my immediate question would be is this what university is getting employability skills and i would very um um uh, forthcomingly answer or argue that it's not university is about something very different than employability skills even though this is sort of where the expectations of society are coming in i'm um i love the idea of blended learning in its in its uh general um implementation we've been doing uh, laurent and i have been doing blended learning i think to good success in a very a complex way and nuanced way and other people have been doing a lot of exceptionally good work in our faculty to incorporate blended learning to improve the quality of education both before and during and hopefully after the pandemic um, but i know that a lot of my colleagues um, have the concern that the marketization of higher education the um, uh, the lack of governmental funds per student uh, and the drop of these funds every year lead to increased pressure. And I have this, um, you know, cynical um, thought in my head that all of these talk about blended learning simply means that we're moving away from having to manage expensive real estate and, um, and scheduling options. Um, all of these things are concerns that I have, but I have been greatly rejoiced by the the fact that uh, the available the access that I have to online and offline tools um, is a lot better today than it was you know 20 years ago when I started teaching 25 years ago however long it's been um, and I'm emboldened by this I'm emboldened by the fact that the the new generation of teachers uh, comes in with great expectations about what the nature of the job is going to be and the, the new generations of students are coming with similarly strong and passionate uh, ideas about what it is that they want to get through their education. Um, maybe we are ending a little bit on a high note, despite my, uh, you know, uh, grumpy old man um, uh, take on all of this. 
And and just to add a bit of an addendum there, maybe to circle back nicely on our topic is something that you're just finishing there and started your answer with is the idea of being heard by both parties being heard, instructors and students. I think that would be a huge hope for mine. And I, in preparation for the podcast, I was in contact with the student faction of the faculty council here at our faculty. And the one thing that they asked me if I could put a message in, and I think it's really important is uh, to talk about a way that students can increase their voice that uh, can make themselves heard, which is the election week. So maybe this is just a message for the students at our faculty that uh, an election week is on the 16th to 20th of May. And we we often have a low turnout for our faculty. And this is, although it may not appear, it is one of the ways that you can make yourself heard. Absolutely. And uh, maybe actually this is something that we haven't really done in this podcast before, but uh, on a similar topic about being heard, uh, write to us if you have comments on any of the uh, topics that we are discussing, if you have wishes about new topics that you want us to address, if you have comments on the on the discussions that we've already had, we'd love to hear from you. I'll make sure that we have an email address in the description of this um, podcast episode for you to contact us. Laurent? That was a very high a positive note to end on, I guess. <laughs> Interaction, <laughs> voice being heard. Yeah. Absolutely. Laurent, thank you for being here. Thank you for inv inviting me. Uh, Fun times talking about education, always liked it. And thank you to our listeners uh, for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll catch you next time on the Degrees of Freedom podcast. This podcast was a production of the University of Groningen.